All right, Jeremy is passing that on handout um, for us, and um, as he does that, I'll go ahead and pray as we begin this morning. Father in heaven, we're grateful for um, your faithfulness. We're thankful for um, your spirit, which dwells with us. We're grateful that you um, give us the blessing of the Lord's day, that you set apart a whole day, um, one day a week, Father, um, for us to gather for worship and for us to receive the gifts you've prepared for us um, through your Son, Word, and Sacrament. Uh, a day for us to rest um, full of the confidence that you love us and that our sins are forgiven in Christ. We pray for that blessing again this morning, Father, um, that you would indeed bless us in that way. And we pray also uh, for your Spirit to be present with us this morning as we continue to discuss um, high and holy things of your ways, um, of your decrees, of your sovereignty. Um, grant us wisdom and humility as we think through these things, Father. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, Jeremy is sending out a, a, pa a packet there for you all. <clears throat> so I'll wait for him to do that. Um, Matt, can you help him? Maybe give a little. Okay, so we are today going to be discussing um, chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we're certainly not going to get through this whole packet today, um, but I just wanted to kind of give us something that you could take home and um, read over um, some of the quotes I've included, read over the um, sections from the confession. Um, you're welcome to bring this packet back next week because we'll um, use it again uh, next Sunday. Well, not not, the first thing I should say um, is next Sunday we will not be here for Sunday school um, before I confuse myself. Um, next Sunday um, is uh, daylight savings time, uh, that wonderful time of the year um, when we spring forward an hour um, on uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning. And so next Sunday we will not have Sunday school um, just to accommodate, give us a little more sleep. Uh, next Saturday night. Um, worship will be at 1030 as it always is, but no Sunday school next week. So we'll continue this on the 19th rather is what I should say. Um, I want to, before we get into the details of each of these um, paragraphs, I'm going to just walk through this packet with you all. I think it's really important um, to hear in the entirety of chapter three um, um, so that you can kind of see how the argument develops that the divines are making here. Um, you can see how they're working out. Uh, what they say in paragraph one and applying it um, to um, particularly the, the issue of salvation and election. Um, so I'm just going to, the, the words in italics there are the portions that come straight from the um, confession, and then I've included uh, a bunch of quotes and things I want to talk about in between each one. But I'm just going to walk through these different uh, sections of chapter three. Um, just read it for us. So follow along if you would. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established." Turn the page. <clears throat> Paragraph two. 
Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. Paragraph 3. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. Turn the page. Paragraph 4. These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Paragraph 5. Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable, it's a word that essentially means unchangeable, eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works, or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. Turn the page once more. Paragraph 6. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power, that is, the power of Christ, through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Paragraph 7. The rest of mankind God was pleased, according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth, or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth, for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by, and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin, to the praise of his glorious justice. Notice how those phrases, the end of chapter, paragraph 7 and the end of paragraph 5, 
uh, parallel and all to the praise of his glorious grace, the divine say about those who are predestined unto life, and to the praise of his glorious justice to those who are ordained for dishonor and wrath. Then finally, paragraph eight, and I'm so glad that this paragraph was included by the divines. Um, it's a truly helpful, I think, and important um, comment that they make here. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation or their effectual calling, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. I hope that's helpful to see and trace that argument throughout um, the chapter there. I think it's really important um, to think about how these paragraphs um, hang together. Um, any initial responses just to hearing all that at once? I think you can also see how this um, chapter flows directly out of chapter 2, which is all about God's um, uh, power and transcendence, um, his nature, um, his justice, his love, um, all of those things, how he's over his creation. Um, all of that is worked out, I think, here um, in this chapter on God's eternal decree. All right, so let's look at paragraph 1. We um, discussed a lot of this last week, um, but just to jump back into it again, God from all eternity did, by the most wise holy counsel, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And so we talked last week about how um, this teaches us that God's decree is eternal in nature. Um, it is before time, um, and it is um, uh, based on his own wisdom and his own holiness. And so therefore his decree is um, wise and holy um, because it is connected to his character, um, to his person. By the wise, most wise and holy counsel of his own will. Um, so no one else other than God was involved in this decree. Um, it solely came from him, not from his creation. Um, it was a free an unchangeable decree. Um, God, um, in terms of what he has ordained, um, he has done so freely, um, without compulsion, without um, any dependence on um, what creation might do um, or what creation might be. Um, the Lord freely um, chose these things. And his eternal decree is um, unchangeable uh, because God's rule is absolute um, because he is um, above us um, because he is ultimately sovereign in every way. Freely and unchangeably he has ordained whatsoever comes to pass um, from um, the fluttering path of the butterfly to the 
tides to the seasons to um, the hurricanes to um, the lifespan of you and me um, to um, um, the salvation um, of those whom he has called to himself. Um, our Lord has ordained everything whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, they want to make sure we understand there are these three, uh, we might say, qualifiers or fences um, that they want to lay down as we think about what it means that God has ordained everything. Um, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin. We talked about this at some length last week, that God has done this in such a way as he is not um, the originator, um, the author of sin. Um, we believe this is true because the Bible teaches us that God is um, holy and pure in him um, that he is light and in him there is no darkness at all as first john says or as james says that um, god um, does not tempt us um, god is not capable of tempting us of sin um, because there is no sin in him as james tells us um, and then these other two qualifiers nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures uh, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, rather established. And we talked last week about how uh, second causes are essentially, um, uh, if, it, if, it, if it refers to something that happens in nature, then the second causes are those um, conditions in nature that lead to the outcome that is produced. So like if it rains, uh, the secondary causes would be the atmospheric conditions um, the temperature changes, the moisture in the air, um, those things um, are not taken away, but rather they're established by God's decree. Um, God uses those things. Um, if we're talking about a human being, here we're talking about the decision-making, the choosing of human beings. Um, God does not ordain such so things in such that the liberty or the contingency of our uh, decision-making um, is taken away, but rather established. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning in some detail. Um, J.V. Fesco is a, a contemporary reform theologian. Um, he's published a book recently called The Theology of the Westminster Standards that I'd recommend. I think it's pretty helpful if this is something that you uh, want to do some, some deep study in. So I've, I've got some some lengthy quotes from him. I want to read these things as we think about what does it mean that God does not um, uh, take away the contingency of our will or of our decisions. Um, so Fesco um, puts this uh, this way. He says, God ordains the occurrence of all things, but in such a way that human beings are responsible uh, for their actions. Um, so um, we are not um, as you know, a caricature of um, Calvinism would suppose uh, puppets, right, uh, on the string. Um, no, we are actually uh, responsible for our actions because, um, because of the way that God gives us the freedom to make decisions. With this qualification, the divines affirm both necessity and contingency. Whatever God ordains necessarily comes to pass, but can it can and will come to pass contingently. What do they mean, however, by contingency? And here he's talking about, he's going back into the culture and time of the 17th century and trying to understand how that word is used in its original context. And he argues, contingency, as the divines are using it, means that something could be otherwise. Um, 
So there might be some other outcome that could uh, develop. Uh, God's decree, for example, is contingent in the sense that he was under no external or internal necessity to decree anything. He was free to decree and free not to decree. Hence, the decree is contingent in its genesis. But once God decrees it, there is no longer contingency from the divine perspective as the divines assert. Um, remember that word divines, as we use it in reference to the writers of the Westminster Confession, just means pastors. It's just a 17th century word for pastor. Uh, as they write in chapter 2, in his sight, in God's sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent on nature, so, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. As it pertains to creatures, however, the divines state that the decree, far from taking away freedom, and contingency establishes it. Without God decreeing to create creatures that would have the freedom to choose among various options, there would be no freedom whatsoever because free creatures would not exist. Um, so what they're saying is that in God's decree, he, is, he has given us um, contingency in our choices and our decision. He doesn't take that away. Uh, Fesco goes on to say, Twiss, who was um, the um, moderator or chairman of the Westminster Assembly for four years, um, 1643 to 46, and when he died in the middle of the Westminster Assembly. Uh, Twiss, he writes, elaborates upon these two points by noting that God, as an efficacious agent, can ordain to bring something to pass either necessarily or contingently, um, producing necessary things necessarily, and agents for the producing of contingent things, contingently and freely. So what he's saying is that if God um, ordains for a hurricane to come at a particular time, he's doing that necessarily. Um, uh, the, the wind doesn't have any kind of uh, will. Um, it's not a rational agent. It just simply does what God tells it to do. Whereas if God ordains um, something to happen that involve human choice, human decision, um, he does so contingently. He does so in a way that allows us to, to make choices, um, to, to do um, as we believe we should do. Um, Twist illustrates this, and I understand that this sounds like a paradox. Um, Twist illustrates this point by noting that God preordained that Josiah would burn the bones of the prophets upon the altar, um, 2 Kings 23, and Cyrus would proclaim liberty to the Jewish exiles so that they could return to Israel. Ezra chapter 1. But then he asks, asks rhetorically, What sober divine hath made doubt whether Josias and Cyrus did not herein that which they did freely? Right? They burned the bones on the altar because they wanted to. They, Cyrus um, set, proclaimed liberty to the Jewish exiles because he wanted to do that, because he decided to do that. Twist cites a second example in God's decree that none of Christ's bones should be broken. Um, that prophecy, um, and then writes, yet what sober man should make question whether the soldiers did not freely abstain from breaking Christ's bones? So God ordained it, and yet in the moment in time in which Christ was crucified, the soldiers that crucified decided not to break his bones. Um, um, and that's, that was, a, as far as they understood it, as far as they operated, a free choice that they made. 
Fesco goes on to say, as complex as these things might be, Reformed theologians have long maintained the seemingly contradictory teachings of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. This is no mere isolated phenomenon in the Reformed tradition, um, what the divines are saying here in the Confession, but appears in numerous works of early modern Reformed theologians. If God wills something to occur, it will necessarily come to pass, but as pertained to the second cause or the human agent, events occur contingently and freely. The point, as complex as it might appear, is very simple. God is sovereign and human beings are responsible. Let me read these last two paragraphs and we can talk about it some. According to the confession, God does, does ordain whatsoever comes to pass, but he does so in such a way that he is not the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, and contingency and freedom are established. All too often, he says, people do not carefully read the confession statement about the decree. Critics, for example, fail to coordinate the confession's doctrine of the decree with its affirmations about providence, free will, and contingency. And this, is, I think, is absolutely right. Um, the confession, uh, we have to read the confession in it as a whole, not just pick out particular um, phrases. Note how the confession sincerely says this. Um, although, in and here it quotes from chapter 5, which is on providence. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. Yet by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. This is why James can say um, to um, his readers, um, you do not have because you do not ask. Um, that is the reason, um, because you're making that decision. And yet, we can also say that God ordained um, for the gap in their prayers to be there. Likewise, in its chapter on human free will, the confession states, God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. This is speaking of um, Adam's uh, estate in the garden before the fall, before sin. Adam was not forced to sin, he did so freely. Um, and that's something we'll see as we work through the confession, that divines are very interested in that shift that takes place between um, um, the freedom of the will that Adam had and the way in which all of us, because of corruption, because of a total depravity, um, are not able in and of ourselves to choose goodness or righteousness. Um, we need God's intervening grace um, to do those things. Fesco goes on, he says, this point cannot be stressed enough. The divines believe that if human actions were not contingent, that is freely chosen, then God could in no way hold sinners accountable for their sin. Conversely, if human acts were not truly contingent and free, then there would be no need for the response of faith to the preaching of the gospel. The human will is bound to sin, but our choices are free and not forced upon us. Even though God decrees whatsoever comes to pass, people freely make their own choices. God is not the author of sin and offers no violence to the will of creatures. They freely choose sin. We sin because we want to sin, because we desire um, whatever it is that we're doing. Only through the grace of the gospel does fallen humanity freely choose what is spiritually good. 
though we are still hampered by the abiding presence of sin. When sinners are converted and ultimately glorified, they are completely, so this is talking about our estate um, in glory, they are completely freed from sin and immutably able freely to choose good. All right, what questions or thoughts do you have? I know I've given you a monologue here to start. Yeah, Tyler. Yeah, I would, I would not say that divine contingency and human contingency are the same. If that, is that what you're saying? Well, I think it depends on who the actor is. Yeah, I don't, I don't think any of us ever have the kind of absolute freedom that God does um, in terms of his sovereignty and power. Um, but I think they are intentionally using that word, contingency to affirm um, the reality that human beings make choices, that we're rational agents. What is human contingency? I think it's, I think it's um, give, being given the freedom that the Lord gives us um, as rational agents to make decisions, exercising that freedom. Um, I don't think in terms of a philosophical um, condition, no, I don't think so. But I think it's just simply reading the scriptures and seeing how people make decisions. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just everywhere. People make decisions. God judges them on the basis of those decisions. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't know if I can help you, Tyler. Um, I mean, I think these are deep and mysterious things and that there are uh, what appear to be paradoxes here. Um, I'm not sure I follow exactly, well, exactly what you're saying. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm happy to chat more with you. Yeah, Jeremy.
Sure. Our will is con constricted that way, yeah. Yeah, and I think this is part of my point. I mean, none of us have contingency in the way that God does, right? We're, we're limited by being creatures. You know, I, I can't um, fly, for example, even if I want to. Um, um, you know, I, there, there are limits upon me that exist that don't exist for God. Um, certainly that's true. Um, but I, I do think it's important to protect this idea that we are made as creatures in God's image, um, and the Lord um, gives us choices to make rational agents that make decisions. Um. Yeah. As far as if they would say, oh, we were totally wrong. We had some constraint on us. Yeah. I, I think that's true. In terms of what we believe is true about us. What else? Yeah, Donovan. Run the I'm, I'm trying to and the spirit replied, I will go out and inspire all of Ahab's prophets to speak lies. You will see that the Lord is going to do it. Um, how does that fit into God's? Well, I don't think it's any different than anything I'm saying. God, or I mean, the same way that. God could go to Moses and say, here's what Pharaoh's going to do. At the end of it, I'm going to deliver you, and it's going to be fine, right? But, you know, there's going to be a lot of obstacles between here and there because I don't know Pharaoh's part. Does that make sense? Um, sure. Yeah, I know. I understand why it's hard to, to wrestle with that. What I'm, but I, what I'm saying is that the scriptures speak consistently as though both things were true. And so we have to hold them both. We have to hold both that God, um, you know, <laughs> ordains whatsoever comes to pass. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. He frustrates the, um, the prophecies of those prophets you're referring to. Um, he gives us assurance about the future, not about everything, but about certain particular things that he's going to do. Um, um, and yet, he also engages with us and holds us responsible um, for the decisions we make. Um, I think I think that the um, the reason why it's so important to hold on to both these things at once is that um, there's a bit of a farce involved in if God comes to 
it sends the prophet and he says, you know, repent of all your sins, right? Um, and he's not, that that's not a genuine offer, that that's not a genuine call, right? And people really are responding and making decisions in response to that um, without violence being done to their will. And yet God is also ordaining the outcome of all their decisions. Um, I, don't, I don't know how to collapse these lines together. In fact, I don't want to. <laughs> I want to I wanna hold on to both of them. Yes, ma'am. In terms of our election, you mean, essentially, salvation? Daily choices, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree with both those points, yeah. Absolutely. Lauren, do you have any wisdom to add? Somebody's thought about these things a lot. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I echo those um, comments. Yeah, Tyler. 
Okay. That's fine. Yeah. Go ahead. I was referring to the chapter on free will, which is coming up. Yeah. They go into that in excruciating detail with the scripture references to it. That's a little bit unfortunate that we're delving into free will here because of the wording, but yet that chapter covers both. I would hold off. Yeah. No, I, I would say, yeah, let's, I'm happy to, for us to talk more about this, Tyler. I, I um, understand the concerns you're raising. I think that chapter on free will would be helpful for you. Um, yeah, let's keep talking about this stuff. You're fine. You're not, you're not bothering me. You don't need to shut up. <clears throat> Anything else before I move us forward a little bit here? All right, let's, let's read the second um, paragraph. This, has, this paragraph has to do with um, essentially whether God, um, and this is a position that sometimes is articulated in Arminianism, um, that God ordained things to come to pass because he knew what people would do. And so the people that he knew would respond um, with faith, God ordained them for salvation, but he did it because he knew that they would choose that, if that makes sense. Um, so they're responding to that, they're excluding that um, by this statement. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. Um, so God... Um, God's uh, decree is independent, as I said previously, of, um, of us. Um, God's decree is his own. It's not simply based on him knowing the future and being capable in the divine mind to somehow manipulate all the different conditions to bring about the thing that he wants. Um, rather, God ordains directly everything that takes place, um, not simply because he saw it um, as something that would happen. Um, if he did other certain things that would lead to that outcome. Uh, Van Dixhorn, Chad Van Dixhorn, his book, Confessing the Faith, another great resource um, on the confession. Um, he says, though God knows every possible conditional, every possible if-then statement, these conditionals do not influence him. He makes his decisions apart from them. The knowledge of God does not bind him. We serve the God who is entirely free. Um, I don't know, I mean, if y'all want to talk in detail about this, we can. I don't know if there's a whole lot to say other than just this is taking seriously God's sovereignty um, and his independence from his creation. Any questions or thoughts about this brief paragraph? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the connection there is that um, that God ordained all those things. It's not just that he knew what happened, but he, he was in control. He was sovereign. Yeah. Yeah, and, and speaking of further um, chapters, um, uh, there is a, a whole chapter um, coming in a short time um, of the fall of man um, and how some of these things work out, particularly in, in the garden. Um, it's not necessarily going to answer all our philosophical questions about that, um, but I think there's, there's more to be said in terms of um, that question. All right, so three. Um, and here I think we're just, again, continuing to work out what we believe regarding um, God's sovereignty, um, and certainly also dealing with, I, I believe at least, the clear teaching of Scripture about um, how God acts in history in terms of salvation. By the decree of God <clears throat> for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. So essentially what they're doing here is they're applying um, this concept to, um, to the eternal salvation or condemnation of human beings, or angels as well for that matter. Um, Van Dixwarren comments, <clears throat> sometimes we wonder why God destines some for heaven and others for hell. Why do some see God in his mercy and others ultimately only in his wrath? We may perhaps never be able to give these questions a sufficient answer. Nonetheless, it is helpful to remember three things. And I think these are, this is good advice as we think about this. How can God be um, just um, and loving if he does this, if he saves some, but others he doesn't save, others he condemns, and he ordains all of this. Uh, first, we have all earned the wages of sin, and if we have looked unblinkingly at our wicked hearts, we know that what should be coming, we know what should be coming to us on the judgment day. We shall never understand divine punishment until we have an understanding of our own depravity, our own sinfulness our own corruption, with its wider implications as well as an accurate portrait of the comprehensive purity of God, the holiness of God, how God is not um, sinful. Few who question God's decrees have the patience to investigate the character of his holiness or the nature of our sin. Second, the greatest marvel is not God's judgment, but that at the end of the day, we discover that our master planned in eternity a mercy for us that we do not deserve. Recall the conclusion of one of Jesus's parables, where the owner of the vineyard is criticized for injustice. Um, this is the story um, of where um, the workers in the vineyard and the work, the, the Master of the vineyard agrees to pay a certain wage to the workers that start at dawn, and then he goes and finds more and more, and he pays them all the same. And at the end of the day, he, he lines them up and he pays out what he said he would pay. And the ones who uh, started in the morning are very upset that the ones who started an hour before closing time got the same amount. And um, he responds to that critique in the parable. Um, recall the conclusion of one of Jesus' parables where the owner of the vineyard is criticized for injustice. And he responds with a question that exposes the critic's jealousy of his generosity. Certainly, it would not be wrong to put this question in the mouth of God himself. And I think, obviously, that's what Jesus is 
inviting us to do in that parable. Am I not allowed, this is how the master of the vineyard responds to the critique, am I not allowed to do what I choose with that which belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Um, so part of this is just saying, the Lord is the Lord. Um, he is the master, he is sovereign. Um, if he desires to save some, but not all, we should be thankful to that and submit to that and trust that he alone is the arbiter of what is just, um, that we, we can't put him in the dock, so to speak, in that way. Uh, third, we must heed the opening line in the third paragraph of chapter three of the confession, which reminds us that when God determines the destiny of his creatures, he does this as he does all things for his own glory because he is God. Um, and God, it seems, according to the writing of scripture, um, as Paul says in Romans 9, uh, you know, what if there are some vessels that are created for wrath that they might show forth God's justice? Um, and that's challenging for us to wrestle with. Um, and yet it seems to be the way that the scripture speaks pretty clearly, I believe, um, that there's something um, about God's character that is revealed to his glory in his judgment of sin um, and his, his destruction of sinners. Yes, David. It's okay. Yeah, jump in. Freedom of will. Right. Still saying you have the choice to make. So you can make that choice quickly. If you think what the Lord is doing is evil in your eyes, this is what you keep your choice open. Yeah, and that's obviously that's a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. Absolutely. I think you're right that that's the Lord deals with us that way. Yeah, no, I think it's a helpful, a helpful reference to think about. It's certainly a place where that's shown very clearly. Um, Jeremy, yes, sir. Well, let me, let me show you something um, along those lines. That's, I think you're right. I think that divines actually are doing that in the way that they speak about this. They are not, um, they are, I think, in some ways carving a path that is not quite 
the way that Calvin would speak about this, for example. Um, they are, and doesn't mean they're like, you know, massively disagreeing with Calvin, um, but they are distinguishing, they're using different words, right? Um, so, for example, um, in this um, uh, paragraph, they say that men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life, and others are foreordained to everlasting death. Um, and I think that difference is intentional. Um, you can see um, uh, that consistent language being carried out in verse, in chapter, in, sorry, chapter, paragraph five, those of mankind that are predestinated unto life. And it goes on and talks about the elect. And then um, in paragraph seven, the rest of mankind was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth. This is about those who are condemned for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor. So they, they want to, and, and this is consistent with how the scriptures speak, I think. And if you look at the references there, you'll see that, that the scriptures use this language as well. It doesn't mean that God does not ordain um, the, uh, that there will be some who are not elect, who will be condemned, but it does mean that his will is active in a different kind of way, that his will is specially active in a particular way um, for those whom he calls out of their sin, out of their corruption and redeems and brings to himself, right? So they're, they're saying both pass by and ordain. Um, and and, and I, think, I, think, I think they're pushing toward that, trying to be sensitive to that tension that you're describing. Um, that does, does, I think, exist in the scriptures, um, that God's um, active decree is especially present in a, in a certain way with the church. And we see that actually in the chapter on providence that's coming up. It talks about God has a, has a special providence for his church. Now, now what, what does that mean exactly, that God has a special providence for his church in a way that he doesn't for um, those who are outside the church? I don't know if we can say it exactly, chart that law that out, but we, I think we can affirm it. I think we can say that God um, is um, active in a particular way in um, the, the salvation of humanity, that part of, portion of humanity that's saved and elected, um, as opposed to how he acts towards those who are not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Any final comments before we wrap up? We've got about a minute. Not enough time to anything new. Well, let me just take that minute to uh, read again paragraph 8. Um, I want to keep putting this before us. This is what this is supposed to do for us. Right? We can talk about the philosophical questions and try to wrestle with all the things, um, but here's what the divines wisely instruct us about the purpose of this doctrine of God's election and sovereignty. The doctrine of this high mystery, it's a high mystery, right? It's, it is one of the most mysterious things we could ever talk about. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care got to be careful how we talk about this. Um, it's complicated. It has people's souls um, in view. 
has the character of God in view. Um, it is, has questions like, is God just? Is God good? Is God loving? Um, all of those things. Um, we should handle it with special prudence and care, with caution, I would say. Um, that men attending to the will of God revealed in his word. And again, that, that is important. What we're, we're trying to do here is wrestle with the scriptures and yielding obedience thereunto. So ultimately we obey what God has said in his word about himself. May from the certainty of their effectual vocation or calling be assured of their eternal election. Um, so for those who belong to Christ, the teaching of this doctrine is meant to um, express itself in our confidence about our being elect, about our belonging to the Lord, our assurance. It's for our assurance that God teaches these things. So shall this doctrine afford, this is, so it should, should produce matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God. We should praise God. We should be overwhelmed by his glory, his love, his, his majesty, his power, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all who sincerely obey the gospel. It should, it should result in us being humble, in us being faithful, and us being consoled in abundance um, to those who obey um, the gospel. This is good news, um, the doctrine of God's decree. All right, let's stand and pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks um, that you indeed reign over all things. Um, we thank you for your love, for your mercy, for your kindness. Um, I do pray, Lord, as we consider these things, that it would increase our confidence um, in the assurance of our salvation that we have. For we um, have this salvation, Father, this gift, not because of our own doing, um, but because of yours, because of your uh, sovereign will, because of your um, kindness to us. Uh, Father, we pray that you would give us humility and diligence and abundant consolation um, as we consider these doctrines um, today and in the weeks to come. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Reminder, no Sunday school next week. We'll be back on the 19th.